Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, the podcast for embedded Linux developers who want to simplify and speed up their custom platform development. Visit timesys.com today for access to our podcast archives. Welcome back. It's been a while since uh, we've recorded our last podcast. This is Machi here, and um, Gina's here with me. Hi there. Well, we've been traveling like all over the place. I don't think we've both been in the office for more than a day for, for the past at least month. Yeah, that's been actually a challenge for us to uh, just get together in the same uh, room and record our next episode. So uh, Suppose, Supposedly, this is what I've been told, yeah. right? So supposedly the AV geek that, uh, that we have at our office, not the guy, we have someone that mixes our podcast, but we have another like, AV person. And he's like, well, I know how to work it in. You can call in from your telephone and blah, blah, blah. never been able to get that to work. Well, There's we, like cables and wires and all that other stuff. We probably have to spend uh, a little bit more time on that. But I just wanted to uh, begin with apologizing for not re- providing you with our regularly scheduled uh, yeah. recordings. Yeah, we do care more than, than that, but We'll, we'll, we'll do better moving yeah. forward. <laughs> sorry. So today we would like to uh, cover two main topics, I guess. We would like to talk a bit about the latest Linux kernel release from kernel.org and what are the different uh, feature functionality it brings. Yeah, that I mean, that's where it's like 2.6.25. And it, it, when did that come out? It was... Um... Uh, it came out on, I believe, uh, mid-April, around April 16th, 17th, I think. Yeah, I thought it was closer. To, yeah. So it, it was right around the uh, uh, embedded systems conference in uh, San Jose. So I remember standing on the floor and thinking, huh, the 625 is out. In, in fact, uh, we were talking, we're like, man, we got to make sure we cover some of the stuff that appears in 2625 in our next podcast. And we mm. just just never got back in the office to do that because there's all kinds of cool stuff in there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of it, I mean, there's, of course, the, the bevy of stuff for, best, uh, for desktop folks, but there's also a lot in there for embedded too. Absolutely. And the second main topic for today is going to be... Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about DebugFS a little bit. That's right. Uh, every, everywhere we seem to go, well, everywhere I go, <laughs> well, a couple places I've been... No, no. No, you travel everywhere yeah. and I sit here. Yeah. Okay. So, no, yeah. but a lot of the folks are, are, are new embedded work are really starting to put that to use. And it's a, it's a cool debugging, lightweight debugging tool. And uh, I don't think it quite gets the attention it deserves. Well, so let's do it justice and talk a bit about sure. it and uh, see if um, we can demystify a bit more sure. uh, the topic. So 2.6.25, there is actually a lot of different new features in it, and I don't think that we'll be able to talk about all of them uh, mm-hmm. during the podcast. We would probably need uh, more like two hours, <laughs> and that would probably bother you to death. Yeah, 30 um, minutes is enough. Out of important features that came out in 2.6.25, let's mention a memory resource controller. There's a new feature that allows grouping of uh, different tasks and uh, providing uh, or scheduling groups of tasks instead of uh, single tasks. And uh, I wanted to spend a a bit more time on that particular enhancements, improvement in addition to uh, Linux kernel. So there's also TimerFD, which is uh, pretty cool, right? I mean, we can... We'll get into that, but it's, uh, you can raise some signals on file handles whenever your timer goes off. So it, it, it looks like there's quite a few uh, uh, feature enhancements to well, improve the latency, and there's also a tool that, that was added to that uh, release, which is mm-hmm. called Latency Top. Yeah. Yeah, that was really cool to see that see that in action. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's, the, uh, uh, you know, it's not the greatest latency-seeking tool in the world, but... Geez, it does a darn good job for probably 90% of the people that ever need to find latency issues in mm. their software. I mean, it really is. It's a great tool. Well, with latencies, it's it's always kind of like 
you, you measure it, you measure it continuously. Mm-hmm. And then one event happens that different processes align in certain ways mm-hmm. and the execution hits the path that you haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, probably these kind of tools uh, are going to be, to be used moving forward on a continuous basis to ensure the maybe the worst case latency mm-hmm. um, for any embedded system. And, oh, and finally, too, there's a CAN implementation. And, and and can doesn't mean like yes we can but no, for for control <laughs> yes, we can yeah, for control area network which is the I don't know, I think if you have a car and it was built recently mm-hmm. I think recently means like since the Reagan administration uh, it has a control area network adapter in it you just hook it in there and uh, yeah, that that particular protocol is very useful especially in the automotive industry so um, uh, let, let's mention that uh, that one as well yeah uh, I know I when, it, when it came, I know you cut me cut, off there uh, but I know yeah. it came out it was supposed to be like general purpose industrial controlling the and uh, that seems to have fallen almost completely into the automotive sphere I mean I haven't seen any yeah. application outside of automotive that uses can it's it's actually a very simple um, connection between different devices hooked hooked up to that network right so it's uh, it's very cost and uh, performance efficient. Um, mm-hmm. And cars, I mean, how, how fast connections do you need in, in between systems and cars, right? Especially for my car. <laughs> well, yours is from last century, slightly, just like mine. <laughs> yeah, well, it was right after the Reagan administration when they built my car. So, nevertheless, uh, can, uh, support for Canvas yeah. protocol, yeah. that particular one that got into a 2625 uh, release, I believe has been contributed by Volkswagen, mm-hmm. which just proves our idea of importance of Canvas to uh, automotive industry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know an automobile that comes out without Canvas. And it's really good to see some of the bigger automakers uh, support uh, open source in the way that they do. Because I, I know Linux is a common modeling tool for them uh, and uh, so i mean they need something like can bus and instead of keeping that proprietary and keeping that to themselves or beginning to see the value of uh contributing back to the open source right. community instead of just taking from it because right and, and this is not the only canvas uh implementation or, or, or driver that you can find out there there's a couple other uh projects i guess mm-hmm. that people have been using i know that we have used in the past, other projects as well. But the beauty of Canvas is that, just like any other protocol, uh, once you have devices hooked up on the on same protocol, they just communicate. Hey, you know, I was at, I know this is off the topic, but yeah, I was at one of our uh, customer sites. Oh, yeah. And it, so this guy had a Camaro. Uh, I think he had, it was like a late 70s Camaro. And uh, for him, he was unhappy with the performance. And so what he did is he soft-cored the computer on the car. So we got out a um, a little sampler, right? And he drove around and he sampled and saw what the different inputs were doing and saw roughly the response. Because you know, something, it's, it wasn't like I had to run the transmission because it was the yeah. transmission was one of those fluid, right. completely fluid dynamic transmissions. So uh, so he soft cored. He he got Linux going, and then he just re implemented. I think in Python, he just you know soft cored his car and he has a little Linux host in there. And then he was able to tweak things like his. Uh, I think I think all he could really fiddle with was the Spark Advance. Hmm. And uh, what else could he do ignition-wise? Uh, I think he had a little bit of control over the fuel mix, too. So I, I guess uh, next year at Embedded Systems Conference, or maybe even Boston, we're going to see one of those prototype cars, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it would be, it would be cool. It would be, you know, beat the giraffe, whatever they had this year. Uh, but No, but I think it was really cool. I, but I, I just bring that up because, you know, that was pre-CAN bus. And, uh, and, you know, 
after CAN bus came in, that's the only way you really could talk to a, the ignition or the transmission or mm -hmm. any of the other devices. Yeah. And that was pretty closed up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you either you either had to you know be in the industry and you know get the proper CAN decoder, you know get the magic decoder ring, or uh, you had to do a piecemeal. Right. So I, I really I'm really happy to see Linux opening up that that you know, part of the consumer electronics space. Because yeah. your car is a big bundle of consumer electronics, and that's that's great that people will be able to start hacking on that a little bit, exactly. without having to fork over big cash for a you know for some proprietary can. Well, and uh, the new cars that are coming out today, um, there's there are so many computerized systems in there that, um, given the numbers that in which it gets produced, um, Linux is just a matter of time, or it's already being adopted. Oh yeah. So. But uh, let's go back to 2625. And um, no, that's okay. Uh, real time group scheduling. That's something I wanted to spend a few uh, minutes on oh, okay. because that concept has been explored in the past by companies like us, but also has been live in the open source community mm -hmm. for a while. So, right now with 2625 uh, Linux kernel release, you can group tasks for a specific user and assign percentage of a processor time to that group of tasks. Okay. Which means that you can control which applications consume what portion of CPU, available CPU time. Interesting. It's kind of like a reservation. Right? Yeah. Well, can you take, like, so I'm thinking about this. Does that mean you can, if you have like a uh, monitor, I'm using a bad word, not like a computer monitor, but some software that runs that you can you know, connect over some protocol, can you, can you give it 5% of the, the processor time? Yeah. So, so that way, if things go all bad in, uh, uh, in the rest of your user land, you can still get in there and kill it. You know, that's kill right. Oh, that's really cool. So uh, if you have several applications in your system, it's, it's much easier to manage priorities between those applications by just simply grouping processes that various different applications spun in your system and manage priorities in groups. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I thought so, too. Does it, how does it? Do you, do you know how it works? I don't mean to quiz you because I mean, right. go ahead. You know how it works for like children process? Do, do, do children and in, in, you know? So if if you do a fork, do you get part of that group? I don't know the details of that particular implementation yet. Uh, I would imagine so. Yes, because um, they would belong to the same user group, right? Okay. So that's cool. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting for someone to you know set a knit at like five percent and then complain why their system's going so slow. Yeah, we should probably build a. a, a Perhaps one of our listeners can share uh, those experiences with us, but uh, if not, we'll we'll try to build a little application here. Yeah, see, I haven't had the chance to toy around that because it seems like you could wreak some some havoc, some fun havoc. Yeah. I'm sorry. Anyway, so you're making the no, that's okay. The next implementation that uh, got into mainline is support for preemption of read copy update on the RCU, so called, right? Yeah, and that's been and that's been a challenge to real time behavior of a linux kernel because preempting preempting uh, with an rcu has been it's been always questionable right so right now with that patch or accepted in the mainline uh you can preempt rcus getting at the same time better latencies it's interesting that um beginning with 2621 i believe that's when it started happening that uh, all those real-time uh patches were accepted to a kernel mainline that we still observe a lot of enhancements around that area uh, meaning that low latencies are important to to most of the applications mm -hmm. and you can always be selective about which features you want to enable in a kernel that that you want to enable for your project for a platform 
Yeah. And so you can control which latency options get into your version of a Linux kernel. Uh, Spinlock's been another area, I guess. Very. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no, nonstop traffic on that one. For, for especially for a real-time kernel, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, uh, when you have processes spinning on a access to a shared resource, okay. uh, you can starve processes fairly easily, right? If, if there's other stuff going on in the system. Well, what it does do is it actually queues up, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of, instead of having almost like the, uh, it's probably, I'm probably going to get hate mail, but almost like the Ethernet kind of system, right? So it's like you get in when you get in. At least this establishes some kind of queuing, right? Right. So you have, you know, queuing is the first step to schedulability. Right. So at least you have some sort of sanity with respect to getting, you know, your spin lock interrupted so it doesn't starve. Um, that's right. It, it's, that's. I think that another another area that got into the kernel mainline is big kernel lock preemption. That was also improved. Oh, was it? And at 2.625, I believe so. To make big kernel lock always preemptible, that, that's, uh, I believe, right now part of a 2.625 Linux kernel. Oh, wow. What else uh, do we have there? Oh, you know what I saw that was most interesting? And mm-hmm. this is for E300, because E300 power is a PowerPC architecture. Yep. And that's uh, like a low-power E500, I think. Folks that wanted to use O-Profile couldn't because there wasn't O-Profile support in there. And you know, b- because it's so so close to the ETH 500, so uh, you know, there's like a 10 line patch that says, "Hey, this is also right." And and so you can also you can get a O profile support for that now too. Yeah. It has like all the same measurement uh, you find on E 500 for PowerPC. So right. I mean, it's pretty cool. So that you know, that way, folks that are doing lower power, you know, the people that really need to to look at things right. with O profile to find latencies and problems can can do that with the E300 series. In terms of subsystems that were touched in a 2.625 kernel, there's one that actually pops up is, uh, is definitely power management because, well, an embedded space power management is one of the key important issues, right, that you, you want to look after or manage how much uh, battery juice uh, your your system needs. Yeah, I was um, at a customer last week and their power budget was 2.5 watts and that was it. Hmm. Anything over 2.5 watts, I red light. The sun would stop shining. I, I don't know what exactly what would happen, but well, I knew exactly what would happen. But it would be bad. So they had a really tight power budget. Uh, 2.625 kernel adds a couple of features that help users test various power management features. So other than that, I know that there has been um, improvements to memory management. Um, we've mentioned a couple of process scheduling changes that uh, were introduced. In terms of device drivers, I, I wanted to actually mention a few. You did say support for O-Profile on E300. Yeah. But there's also a, a number of different platforms, processors that got into a kernel mainline, including support for the latest processor from Atmel, uh, which is Cap9. Uh, there's a, a mainline support right now for a couple of Marvel-based platforms, including uh, FiCore, PXA270 modules. There's support for Qualcomm MSM 7X, 7X00 systems. I'm just going to go through through this list very quickly, and then we can go to our second main topic. I just wanted to mention those uh, for those of you that are interested in, in all the new stuff that um, that got accepted in the mainline. So uh, support for MPC 5200, is, is, which is a freescale processor mm-hmm. used in the automotive area as well. Okay. Then we've mentioned uh, E300 core and a couple of platforms around 
PowerQuick 3 and yeah. PowerQuick uh, 2 Pro. Then we have support for the latest Marvell processor, the PXA 3XX, and uh, um, there is a basic support for Littleton. Um, do we have one of those? Do we have one of those Marvell boards here? We have a number of Marvell platforms that we that we work with, but uh, I'm not sure if we. Because that's Xscale, isn't it? Um, isn't that it? Yeah. Uh, underneath, underneath the covers, which is really ARM something, right? That's right. It's um, It's been ARM 9 so yeah. far. And in terms of the latest ARMs, Kernel Mainline got a couple of patches um, that support the Cortex-A8 processors from uh, companies like TI, so latest OMAPs. That's the one thing about ARM, because the way they license, they have... You know, there are 50 million variants of the ARM instruction set, and then you need different support for each board. If right. you just, just do a quick survey, I mean, it's amazing what's underneath you know, ARM Arch, or pardon me, Arch ARM. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty large part of the Linux kernel. Yeah, it's, it's getting, I wouldn't yeah. say full, right, because I don't think it's fun, but there's, there's a huge number of variants underneath there. Yeah. Because uh, most of those are SOC kind of systems. So mm-hmm. they buy the core off ARM, and they slap their peripheral. I'm not, I'm not belittling uh, hardware design people, but they slap their peripherals on the, on, mm-hmm. on the chips, and so they sell that. You know, they sell it as an SOC, and they just look at ARM as like their their core licensee, right? And uh, and it's a play on their peripherals around that core. Mm-hmm. In terms of peripherals, two six twenty five added support for hundreds of different uh, or improvements to hundreds of different device drivers in different areas: USB, SCSI, uh, MTD, uh, real time clock. Uh, various input devices. I know that there, are, there there's a lot of work done in a uh, video for Linux yeah. branch. So there's also a couple of uh, device drivers for that are useful in a UMTS, right? Telco 3G uh, networks. Yeah. Data. Again, we're not going to be able to mention everything during that podcast. But if you have, uh, if you're interested in finding out specifics of new device drivers that are that got into a kernel mainline with 2.6.25 release, I would um, suggest um, looking at the log files. Uh, you'll file, find very detailed information of what's in there. Yeah, I, I know it's not in this release, right? But, you know, Linux has had support for the Nintendo Wii controllers for, because oh. they run Bluetooth. Yeah. And that's a Bluetooth. And, and they're, uh, you know, the guys here are excited to know <laughs> when they, they have a couple of things set up where they're, they're using them against a whiteboard and, and otherwise... Otherwise, wasting time. Perfectly good time. <laughs> That's part of being yeah, actually uh, or playing with Linux, right? You, you want to actually understand or play with different device drivers and features that are available to you. Yeah, well, they're chasing down too, like the Guitar Hero Bluetooth interface there and, yeah. and everything that's uh, that, that's running that. Uh, so let's move on to our second topic, and uh, the second topic is debugger fast. Yeah, this is another one of them. So for the the place I was at, which by the way. Was walk, which, which was walking distance from Fry's. And, of course, we're here in the... <laughs> so you were in California? Yeah. So we're okay. here in the valley. Okay. For, you know, the Allegheny Valley. Right? So here, so... <laughs> and so uh, for there, I was, I was right down from Stanford. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and uh, I could walk. There's nice fries there. And we don't have fries here at all. And uh, uh, Other than the ones that we eat, yeah. But the other... The other yeah, well, they put uh, fries are in that in that sense. Fries truly are everywhere in Pittsburgh because I mean they're they're on your birthday cake, they're on your sandwiches, True. everywhere. There's a they stick a French fry. But um, uh, what was it? Oh, so anyway, so w- w- this company wanted uh, was very interested in debugging and uh, they're you know prototyping mm-hmm. and uh, they were uh, we started looking to de- debug FS and they were kind of fascinated by that. 
And I know, I, th- I think I've talked about this before. We still get uh, questions about it. But uh, so essence of debug FS is it's a pseudo file system, right? Okay. And it works by you creating device nodes yeah. out there in mem- and, you know, de-entries out there in memory. And uh, uh, you can then mount your debug FS file system and read and write areas of memory, which you've associated with, the de- with these de-entries. So uh, debug FS is more like uh, initial RAM disk, not like initial RAM file system. There, there, are, in, there are literally device nodes built in, a, in memory. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a device node. It's just a, no. just a you know, de-entry. Okay, so is there is there caching going on? No. Okay. It, it all sits out in memory. So what you do is you create your de-entries. Let's say you, you have your driver. Okay. You just create a directory for your driver, and then inside that directory you can create files and say, hey, this file is associated with this long integer, this file name. And then whenever the user does a read, the system comes by and, and sucks that memory location and then passes it out through the you know, uh, I.O. controls back to the user. Um, and so that, that way, you know, across their terminal comes an integer. So, so, so let, let's talk about a, a specific use case. Sure. Uh, an example. Okay? Yeah. Um, that uh, we have a Linux kernel and we have a device driver that we want to constantly monitor. I'll give you, I'll give you a, a great example. So okay. I'll give you a great example. So, 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 so let's say, you know how you write, you know, you're writing your code, right? You say, if any, this should never happen, right? You've written code like that, right? Yeah. So you have this. So what you would do for something like that is you could maintain uh, a counter mm-hmm. for the times that that pass by, like it would be greater than zero. But anyways, you could still monitor times things pass by, and then you could do something like collect a little bit of data in a data structure, mm-hmm. and then you could sit out in user land and uh, do a blocking read on that. And anytime something, I mean, anytime that filled up with data, you'd well, I guess we couldn't do a block and read, but because uh, it would come back with something every time. But you could do a read on that occasionally, and whenever it had some data in it, it you know, you would get whatever information that, that came out, or whatever information you you decided to pass out whenever that event occurred. So let me actually describe it back to you, and and, and correct me if I'm wrong. In right. English, um, so uh, that makes no, sense. no, no. So. Uh, uh, DebugFS is set up um, at the beginning uh, to keep different types of information inside the memory itself. And it's being populated with information directly by the Linux kernel. Yeah. Userland doesn't have direct access to DebugFS. Now, when you're ready in a userland, you would have an application, a daemon of some sort, that does the in- IOCTL and reads data from that memory. Wow, that's even harder. So, so is it? yeah, okay. yeah. So what you would do is so, no problem. So let's, let's go make back. Make it easier on so, me. So let's say you start up your you start up your driver. Yeah. And you say, you know, debugfs create directory, mache. Yep. And then you have another location that's a that's a counter, and you say debugfs create file. You know, u eight and some some makes it makes a short integer, right? So we say, hey, this short integer, mm-hmm. associate it with this file name in the Machace directory. Okay? Okay. Got it? Yeah. So your driver runs along, and let's say that represents some number of uh, packets that have been processed. Okay. We'll, make, we'll, we'll just make that up. We'll, we'll make Machace be a pa- packet processing system. Okay. And, uh, okay, so then your driver runs, and it's doing its thing. Yeah. So then you got in user land, you got your little bash terminal. I'm, I'm typing that on, whatever. So you go in your bash terminal, and you just... You mount proc. I'm sorry. You mount debugfs. Okay. And then in debugfs, because you created a directory, there's a directory that says mache. Yeah. Right. You change directory into that. 
And there's another file entry in there that you created called counter. Okay. And when you do cat counter, it'll read the value of whatever counter is yeah. in kernel land and then deposit it there on your... So it's very similar to uh, how ProcFS behaves. Very similar. Um, I, I still don't understand the part where where I, I can choose what data I, uh, I'm collecting from the Linux. Oh, sure. So, so you just look at it as... Uh, whenever you initiate, whenever you create this D entry, yeah. you pass in a pointer to some location in memory, and you okay. and you tell debugfs how many bytes to read, and what kind of data it is. Okay, but uh, in my device driver, yeah, I have to write to that location as well. Correct. So, but but if okay. but you know if I know I'm talking like old time computer stuff, uh, no? but, but that could yeah. that memory location could just be a variable. Okay, but um, do I have to make my device driver debugfs aware? Yeah. Okay, so I have to implement an interface inside my device driver that takes advantage of debugfs. Yeah, and you do that by by declaring it. It's it's declarative mm-hmm. for the most part, but it's declarative. So you just say create directory, create this file, associate with this variable. So it's very useful when I when I'm writing my own device driver. Or, yeah. or kernel module, and yeah. I want to track certain data. Uh-huh. But um, if I want to debug a uh, stock driver, do they come with debugfs uh, enabled? Some do. Hmm. Uh, so it's kind of so. Yeah, if you're debugging a stock driver, and there's no support for debugfs, yeah. Well, it's not going to be there, right? Is there a simple way to find to finding that out? Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty cool. So if you go on your your system and you you do cat proc file systems, yep. first thing you do and see if debugfs is in there. Yep. And then it's usually a well, not usually, but it's a no dev. So you can say you know mount dash t devfs none, mount point. Yep. And do ls and see what's there. Yeah. Okay, so I can figure out uh, which devices I can debug with debugfs. Sure. Yeah. That's very handy. Yeah. So it's a sort of like a you know man behind the curtain kind of thing. And, and, and because it's that way, you, and it's not part of proc, uh, like your lower level, you know, I'm doing Linux this week kind of person is not going to be able to see anything until they mount up the right file system. So um, how much overhead does that? Do you know? it's, it's got a couple K, right? So, okay. so you have, so it's going to make a, a bunch of uh, D entries, right? Mm-hmm. So you get those taken up memory. And then debug FS, debug FS itself is, you know, 30, 40 K module, I think. Yeah. Maybe like a 30 K module. Okay. Uh, so it's not, it's not killer. Uh, but I mean, the cool thing is much is like, so let's say you instrument your code this way. Yeah. Uh, you can just surround it with, you know, if config debug FS, no, I put a big pound ifs around that and then have it come out and builds that don't yeah. have that configured into the kernel. I, I'm just thinking in terms of, um, someone that verifies the real time performance with debugfs uh, enabled and uh, moves that particular system to a uh, production, mm-hmm. which if, if you've run your uh, benchmarking like um, um, uh, latency tests, etc., cetera, um, with certain features enabled, with debug, fe- debug features enabled, you don't change that because that would change your timings, right? I so, agree. Um, in such applications, um, if if debugfs creates a lot of overhead, um, wouldn't that wouldn't be too helpful? But uh, if it's not a lot of uh, overhead, I think it's a neat feature. In any any case, I think it's a great way to um, alternative to uh, print case and 
through debug fs you can continuously monitor driver's behavior as you uh test it verify it yeah. maybe it's a, it. it's a great qa interface it really yeah. is and then you know you don't even if you leave all the debug fs calls in your code yep. so don't distribute debug fs file system and the user yeah. won't have any access to it, and then you can do an ins mod later if you really need to. So, is there actually a dynamic way of? Uh, I mean, is there a way of dynamically um, disabling debugfs? Well, you don't really disable. You just don't. You just don't load the the module. Just don't load the module, and uh, therefore it's not there. You'll still have the D entries there, but I'm, I'm guessing if you're a real miser, so let's say you're you're a real uh, memory miser, yep. you could probably tickle your. Uh, uh, module to create all your D entries for debugfs when necessary, mm-hmm. and then just because they don't have to be there at all times, they could, they're you know completely dynamic. Yep. So if you wanted to save space on even the even those you know directory or those entries in the file system cache, uh, you could economize there too. But I mean, typically you're not going to have like hundreds of thousands of these things, right? I'd imagine. I mean, it's up to you, but and then potentially you can also build mechanism in your device driver that if the specific module is not present. Just don't write to that debug FS, which would remove the overhead. Yeah, no, that's fairly interesting. Huh? It's not quite as a, it's not quite as cool as System Tap, which is what all the kids are using these days. Which I think we should do a podcast. I really think yeah. we should do a podcast on System Tap. But but it is cool. I mean, it is. It's you know very minimal. You don't need a lot on your host to use it. You know to make use of what's there, and you have a lot of control. That's right. So I, I think we're out of time. I agree. So the thing says, uh, yeah. Thing says we're out of time. <laughs> well, if that thing t- says that we are out of time, then we are out of time. Yeah. So, so thank you very much for uh, your attention this time. Yeah, and I, again, I apologize for taking so long to get something recorded. There's no excuse. If you have any ideas on interesting topics we should cover, please, please do send us an email. You can send an email to podcast at timesys.com. And you can visit us at... I can't remember. Uh, Linux Link Radio. I th- yeah, linuxlinkradio.com. That's right. Uh, stop by and as i said we we do read uh all the mail you send and uh, uh so feel you know feel free questions comments whatever yeah. we do uh, our best to respond to you um in timely fashion yeah. if we if you don't get a response from us um short period it's of time, much that, fault that means that we're traveling <laughs> thank you very much again yeah, thanks a lot bye bye This podcast was brought to you by TimeSys. Are you new to embedded Linux? Looking for a way to simplify your next project? The Linux Link service by TimeSys makes it easy to build your custom embedded Linux platform. Go to timesys.com today or call 866-392-4897 to learn more.